A group of nearly a dozen banks will contribute $30 billion to prop up First Republic Bank, the latest financial institution facing major trouble. It's Friday, March 17th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, reaction to President Biden's ultimatum that TikTok be sold or banned. Plus, the first Undersecretary of Environmental Justice and Equity in Massachusetts on her goals for the new position. Making sure that our air is clean, that our water is clean, and the folks that have been the most impacted by the fossil fuel economy are bearing the benefits. And this hour... Despite protests and a nationwide strike, the president of France pushed through a plan to raise the retirement age. Now he'll face a no-confidence vote. In sports, the Bruins win, mostly cloudy in the 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Stocks are trading higher in Europe, and U.S. future shares are mixed in pre-market trading. This comes after 11 big banks stepped in yesterday to help a smaller rival that has been under pressure. As NPR's David Gura reports, they're depositing $30 billion at First Republic Bank. Four lenders, including J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup, are depositing $5 billion each, and seven others are putting up the rest to bolster First Republic's balance sheet. Like other smaller regional lenders, California-based First Republic has seen customers take their money elsewhere to larger lenders after regulators closed Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Wall Street is worried there could be more trouble, despite assurances from President Biden and financial regulators that the banking system is safe. The 11 banks that have come together to prop up First Republic say this deal is a reflection of their confidence in the system. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Today at the White House, President Biden hosts Ireland's Prime Minister, Leah Varadkar, known as the Taoiseach. They're observing St. Patrick's Day. Varadkar is starting the day today by breakfasting with Vice President Harris before going to the White House. He'll later have lunch on Capitol Hill. Chinese President Xi Jinping will head to Moscow on an official state visit starting next week. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, the trip comes as an apparent sign of support for Russian President Vladimir Putin amid his standoff with the West over Ukraine. A Kremlin statement announcing the visit said President Xi would arrive, quote, at the invitation of Russian President Vladimir Putin with the two leaders to discuss their comprehensive partnership. Putin has eagerly sought China's backing as relations with the West have soured over Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Xi's state visit. His first since being reelected to a third term in office carries deep symbolism in a partnership that both countries last year declared has no limits. Yet China has also sought to project itself as neutral on the Ukraine issue. Beijing says she will bring an objective and fair position that aims to promote peace. Unclear is how that squares with the Kremlin's insistence its objectives in Ukraine can only be achieved by military means. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is wrapping up his trip to Africa. He was in the capital of Niger, Niamey. Blinken praised Niger for its role in fighting terrorism in Central and West Africa. The U.S. has based anti-terrorism operations in Niger. During his trip, Blinken announced the U.S. is contributing $150 million in fresh humanitarian aid to Central and West Africa. To help meet needs in West and Central Africa and the Sahel, created by regional instability. Blinken also cautioned other African nations against working with the Russian private mercenary operation, the Wagner Group. Blinken says the mercenaries exploit other countries' resources, leaving them less secure. 
This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants answers from the former head of Signature Bank. The bank and its CEO helped lobby for weaker bank regulations a few years ago. Warren says that helped lead to the bank's collapse. Warren is giving Signature Bank until the end of the month to respond to her questions. Gambling apps are flooding Massachusetts with ads in these early days of the state's legalized online sports betting program. WBUR's Rob Lane reports that regulators are watching closely. Betting is legal in Mass now, and DraftKings is our local sports book. That's Cambridge-born comedian Lenny Clark in a TV ad that's becoming commonplace on local channels. But State Gaming Commissioner Eileen O'Brien tells Radio Boston she's keeping an eye on places like the UK, where celebrity endorsements for betting sites have recently been banned. To me, that is a huge part of the advertising, and interesting to watch as Europe starts to, country by country, put some restrictions on that. O'Brien says banning celebrity endorsements in Massachusetts might be difficult in practice because some out-of-state TV markets bleed over the border. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The Massachusetts State Auditor wants to take a closer look at the use of non-disclosure agreements in state government. Diana DeZanglio says she wants to see how much money has been spent on covering up harassment and discrimination. She's been pushing to ban NDAs in state politics for a decade. The governor's office says it'll review any requests it gets related to the audit. House and Senate leaders haven't said if they'll comply. Today is St. Patrick's Day. It's an Irish holiday celebrated by a lot of people in Boston, even if they're not Irish. For many, it means going out for a drink. Boston police are asking people to remain vigilant about who has access to their drinks. Police Commissioner Michael Cox says there's been an uptick in reports of drink spiking. He says bars and clubs have begun putting lids on drinks in response. We will prosecute anybody that we find and capture um, uh, who has done this, certainly. But in the meantime, we just want people to stay safe and be cognizant of their drinks and making sure they're covered. I prefer on St. Patrick's Day in general, and particularly out in public, not to drink at all. He also warned that public drinking at the parade in South Boston on Sunday will not be tolerated. Bars and liquor stores in South Boston have agreed to close early on Sunday to curb drinking. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Bruins beat the Jets 3-0 last night in Winnipeg. The Bees will visit the Minnesota Wild tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics visit the Portland Trailblazers. Mostly cloudy today and warmer. It'll get into the lower 50s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures falling to around 40. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the lower 50s. Mostly sunny and breezy on Sunday. It'll be in the upper 30s. And it should stay dry through next week. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 707. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Steve Inskeep. How much can French lawmakers really do now that their president has bypassed them. Emmanuel Macron forced a change in his country's retirement system yesterday. He'd been facing a tough vote in Parliament, one that led to the street protests we've been describing on this program. So Macron invoked a provision that let him raise France's retirement age on his own with no vote. 
Lawmakers protested by singing the national anthem. Soon, they hope to go from singing to voting no confidence in their government. Reporter Lisa Bryant is covering this in Paris. Hey there, Lisa. Good morning, Steve. Okay, so the president has faced weeks of protests, polls showing his move is unpopular. Why would he act without parliament to do it? Well, for Macron, it's about the numbers. The pension system is paid for by employment taxes, but demographic changes, in other words, people living longer. And a shrinking workforce threaten insolvency. He says the system can't afford retirement at 62. Most people here are opposed to the reform, and Macron didn't appear to have the votes in the lower house of parliament, uh, especially from the center-right Republican Party. So rather than risk a vote, he used a rarely used constitutional lever, Article 49.3, which allows him to enact the reform without a vote of parliament. Wow. What was it like when lawmakers realized they'd been cut out of the action? Well, the scene yesterday in the National Assembly, the lower house of parliament, was chaotic. Deputies yelling, banging on desks. Take a listen here. They're yelling at Prime Minister Elisabeth Baum, who has just announced the government will enact the pension reform without a vote of the Assembly. Outside, thousands gathered in Paris to condemn the reform. There were also protests in cities like Marseille. Unions have called for more strikes and protests in the coming days. Opposition parties have called for a vote of no confidence, probably on Monday. And if it succeeds, Macron's prime minister and cabinet are ousted and the pension reform measure is defeated. The government says this will effectively be the vote on the pension plan it denied Hmm. Parliament. Well, let's try to get some perspective here. 62 years old is a retirement age. That's uh, on the low side for the United States, where there's a sliding scale. You might retire at 62, you might retire at 70. But how does it compare to other European countries, essentially France's peers? Well, France is an outlier with such an early retirement age. Uh, In much of the rest of Europe, it's 65 and up. The French are fiercely protective of their universal health care and generous pensions. And it's a choice society has made, work hard, pay high taxes, but also retire at a relatively young age with a high standard of living. So the past two months, there have been hundreds of thousands of people marching against the reform, um, also a series of nationwide strikes, including public transport, refinery workers, teachers, garbage collectors. And in many parts of Paris, the trash hasn't been collected in more than a week, and there are huge piles of garbage in much of the city. If I may ask, how is your neighborhood? smelling (laughs) i am actually lucky i've got uh we have a private collector it's a poor neighborhood of paris and it's gotten a private collection some of the richer parts of paris um there's a lot of garbage out there wow wow interesting contrast the opposite of what you'd think lisa thanks so much thank you that's reporter lisa bryant poland is sending four fighter jets to ukraine It's the first offer of this kind from a NATO nation. And although it doesn't give Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky everything he wants, it may signal new urgency by Ukraine's allies to try to end Russia's invasion. William Taylor was the United States ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. He's now with the U.S. Institute of Peace, and he's on the line with us. Ambassador, thank you for making time this morning. Thank you, Sasha. Good to be here. I want to start with a bit of a technical question, which is that there are, of course, different generations of fighter jets. Do you know what kind Poland is offering to Ukraine? Is it newer generation, older generation? How would you assess their quality? 
So, Sasha, these are uh, MiG-29s. Uh, they were Soviet-era Soviet, Soviet era, uh, uh, jets. Uh, they've been updated. Uh, so they are, I wouldn't say state-of-the-art, but they are very modern, very capable, and, and uh, many NATO allies fly them right now. So they are in the air doing good work. Uh, they'll be a real addition for the Ukrainians. And a bigger question in two parts. Why are these jets so important to Ukraine? And why have NATO allies been relatively slow to send them? So these are important uh, for Ukraine in, in two respects. Um, one is these aircraft, these fighter aircraft, um, are able to support a ground offensive. Uh, as you know, uh, as we all know, the, the Russians invaded and they have occupied parts of Ukraine, like about 20%. The Ukrainians, all they want is to push the Russians back out of their country. They need to do that using military, military forces at the beginning. And they've got now the, uh, the ground forces that are coming on, these tanks that we've been talking about for weeks. Um, now they need the air support. So the first thing that these uh, MiG-29s will do uh, will be the, to, uh, to support the ground offensive that the Ukrainians will mount this spring and summer to push the Russians out. The second thing that, the, that, will, that these Ukrainian pilots will be able to do with these new aircraft is to defend their air, airspace. Um, the Russians are able now to uh, fire missiles. Uh, as we know, the Russians have not been able to succeed on the ground, but the Russians, Russians can fire missiles and other bombs, cruise missiles, um, at civilian targets. So these MiG-29s will be able to counter the Russian aircraft. Well, you're making me more curious about the second question, which is if they are as important as you describe, why did it take so long for Ukraine to be given them? So it's a good question. Um, as you as you've reported, uh, President Zelensky has been asking this from the beginning. Um, one of the concerns has been that uh, it'll take time to train on the, on specifically the F-16s. We haven't talked about the F-16s. The MiG-29s are available in country right now, and the Ukrainian pilots can can use them. They are, they know exactly how to work, how to fly these. They don't to, need any training with these. That's correct. The F-16 is different. So we have, the United States has been saying, well, it takes a long time uh, to train on these F-16s. And there's a supply chain issue in terms of support, maintenance parts, those kinds of uh, technical issues, logistical issues uh, that will take some time. And the important thing is to get these weapons to the Ukrainians in the next month or two for them to be in the, in the fight to push the Russians back out. That needs to happen soon. So the, the, the delay has been uh, the F-16s will come later, like, they're, like these tanks, the sophisticated American tanks will also come later. What, but the, uh, the MiG-29s are in the theater, they're in, in Europe, and the Leopard tanks um, are also in the theater in Europe, and they can be deployed immediately. So four MiG-29s, as we said, that number initially struck me as a small number. How much force do four jets add to Ukraine's fighting capacity? Well, it turns out um, it turns out that the Slovakians uh, have just promised thirteen, ah. um, and the and the polls. Uh, you, you're right; they've said that four are on the way right now. Could be ah. delivered within days. So but this is just part of a larger fleet, eventually. It's part of a larger fleet of twenty-eight. Mm. So those there are more to come, and this can help the Ukrainians a lot. Is this move likely to get other allies of Ukraine to feel more pressure to add more powerful and advanced weapon weaponry? To Ukraine's if, arsenal. If past is prologue, the answer is yes. Uh, what, we've seen this over and over. Um, when one nation will move forward on uh, on providing some weapons, others will follow. 
often it's the Americans um, who will go after another nation has taken this step. So I think the answer is yes. Um, others, including the United States, uh, could soon make a decision to provide uh, this kind of aircraft. However, the National Security Council spokesman has said that what Poland did is not going to make Biden change his position. How likely do you think that the Biden administration will keep maintaining its position of not supplying Ukraine with aircraft? And about 20 I think it's unlikely they'll keep maintaining that position. I think soon they will make this. You know, Sasha, there are two Ukrainian pilots um, reportedly in the United States already for some kind of training. Maybe it's simulation, maybe it's an assessment, but the, the signs are very good um, that the United States will sometime do this. That is former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor. Thank you very much for your insights. Thank you, Sasha. Okay, Sasha, we are about four weeks away from tax day. I don't know about you that this year, for once, I've actually turned in my stuff to the accountant already. I, I always turn mine in on time. I bet Very you type do. A. I bet you do. <laughs> I'm sometimes a little desperate. Certified financial planner Akiva Ellis says you don't really have much time. Paperwork can honestly take more time and work than you think. Ellis co-founded a financial planning firm called The Bemused. Hmm. She says it helps to consider how your life may have changed the last year. If you change your job, had a kid, got divorced, that may affect the tax forms you need and how much help you need to file. Here's something else. If you made $73,000 or less, you can use the IRS free file program. If you earn a little bit more, you may still be able to get free tax prep. The AARP's Lynette Lee Villanueva says its foundation, called TaxAid, will help anyone. It's available to all ages, and we particularly serve those over the age of 50 with low to moderate income. She also says even if you don't think you do, most people could use advice. If they need questions answered throughout the process, then they can request a coach, and we'll provide them with one that will walk them through that filing service. So TaxAid offers help in multiple languages at about 3,800 different places, including libraries and senior centers. The taxpayer can find a site near them, come in, and actually sit down with one of our IRS-certified volunteers and actually have their return prepared for them completely from beginning to end. And if you still don't have enough time, that financial planner we heard from earlier, Akiva Ellis, she says, do not panic. Anyone can file an extension for your tax return, so don't feel too much pressure to get the return in. As long as you get the taxes paid, you can extend that out till October. Now, you can't delay paying, but you can delay filing. This is 90.9 WBUR. Sorry for that disruption. I'm sure they'll be back in just a minute. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from Boston area customers who are deciding if federal guarantees and new management are enough to keep their money in Silicon Valley Bridge Bank. And Maria Blend Power outlines her goals as Massachusetts's first undersecretary for environmental justice and equity. Right now, it's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. GardnerMuseum.org. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Nagin Farsad told us about a new ice cream made with actual crickets. It's the perfect dessert for the person disappointed turtle sundaes didn't have real turtle. <laughs> I'm Karen Chi, filling in for Peter Sagal. This week, we'll have more sweet and or creepy stories. Plus, our special guest, Law & Order Sam Waterston, on the news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today is St. Patrick's Day. It's also Evacuation Day in Boston, Chelsea, Revere, and Winthrop. The holiday marks the day in 1776 when British forces ended their 11-month siege of Boston during the Revolutionary War. Until about a decade ago, government offices were closed here for Evacuation Day. They will be open today, but at least in Boston, parking meters are free. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 53. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 40. Tomorrow, a great start to the weekend with mostly sunny skies and a high again near 53. Sunday will be mostly sunny too, but colder. We'll have a high of only 38 and it'll be breezy. It's 42 degrees in Boston right now at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial auto insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's been one week since Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and was taken over by federal regulators. Now the California bank is reaching out to customers to tell them their accounts are safer than ever. WBOR's Yasmin Ammer has more on the bank's attempt to restore its accounts, including here in Massachusetts. With a newly appointed CEO, a new name, and a takeover by federal regulators, Silicon Valley Bridge Bank has this message for its customers. Come back. Come back. Come back. Okay, that's a scene from the film Titanic. But Kate Winslet's crying out for help as her character is between life and death isn't far off from what Silicon Valley Bridge Bank is doing. In a letter to customer CEO Tim Myopoulos pleaded with them to keep their accounts open. Some experts say that's not a bad move. For customers who already have their money there, I think they should definitely keep it there. It is safe. It is secure. It has unlimited deposit interest. Patricia McCoy is a professor at Boston College Law School and knows a ton about financial regulation. She says federal regulators won't let SVBB do anything risky. But she wonders how the bank will appeal to new customers. Why should they go to Silicon Valley Bank if they can go to an ordinary bank that, as far as we can tell, is in good condition and open for business as usual? The bank's message is reassuring to some existing clients. John Keane is the CEO of MindRhythm, a Boston-based medical tech company that makes devices to diagnose specific types of strokes. 
Federal backing means he's comfortable keeping some of his money in SVBB, but not all of it. I do think you'll see more companies spreading their deposits over multiple banks to prevent situations like this. And certainly a number of the companies that were with Silicon Valley Bank had large sums of money just with Silicon Valley Bank. And I think that practice will probably be modified in the future. And a lot of other customers may feel the same way, says Mike Troiano, a partner with the Boston investment firm G20 Ventures. I think most people are maintaining some kind of relationship with them and sort of waiting to see what happens. There really is a lot of goodwill towards those guys. The community is rooting for them. But not everyone is convinced. Jonathan Levine is the co-founder of Boston-based Folia Materials, which makes sustainable paper products. He's moving his money away from Silicon Valley Bridge Bank after spending countless hours this week trying to pay his vendors. In the end, businesses exist because people trust the business to go forward and do what it's going to do. That means that all sorts of people that I work with need to trust that that payment's going to happen. Levine knows his money would be technically safe in an account backed by the U.S. government. But some of his vendors still feel uneasy. And Levine says, as a small business owner, nothing is worth risking those relationships. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Governor Maura Healey has created a new cabinet position to focus on the intersection of the environment and social justice. Maria Blend Power is the first Massachusetts Undersecretary of Environmental Justice and Equity. She comes from Green Roots, a community-based organization dedicated to improving the environment in Chelsea. And with her now in Lawrence at Manchester Street Park, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you for having me. Your office suggested that we meet here. It was once the site of a trash incinerator, remained contaminated for years afterward. Now it's a lovely Riverside Park. Why is this a good place to show what you're hoping to tackle and what you're hoping to accomplish in your tenure? Communities like Lawrence um, really represent sort of the epitome of environmental justice, of immigrant populations, of low-income residents that are bearing the brunt, the burdens of the leftover sort of historic pollution that, um, that we have created. Would you mind telling people how you define environmental justice? So environmental justice is a disproportionate impact on black and brown people, on low-income people, people of color. And so, you know, we think about environmental racism and environmental classism, and that seems a little bit more obvious, uh, but that's what it is. Can you take us through some of the biggest environmental justice issues facing Massachusetts and how you're thinking about addressing them? Some of the sort of bigger questions are how do we um, electrify buildings, transportation, really the whole way of life so that we transition away from the fossil fuel economy. So a lot of it is sort of retrofitting, you know, making sure that our soil is clean, that our air is clean, that our water is clean, um, and really making sure that the folks that have been the most um, impacted by the fossil fuel economy are bearing the, the benefits, right? Because a lot of times this sort of example of Lawrence uh, of a waterfront park, of um, open space and green space is really not the experience of immigrants in Massachusetts. Parts of Boston and other parts of Massachusetts are supposed to be underwater within 100 years. Can you talk about how environmental justice specifically plays into the issue of climate change? Climate justice is about the impacts of the climate crisis. And that includes flooding. 
and that includes resilience and making sure that as the weather gets warmer or colder or, you know, extreme events, extreme weather events, that the folks who are the most vulnerable are not um, disproportionately impacted. You mentioned Latinos are disproportionately impacted by environmental justice issues. We think about representation in our government. I mean, how meaningful is it to have a Latina in this position? I think it's incredible. And I think that representation in terms of race, gender, and every single sort of identity is really important. Um, And I'm really proud and honored to be the first Latina undersecretary in Massachusetts. How should we measure your success in the coming years? It will be making sure that the communities are at the table. It will be making sure that um, communities like Lawrence, but also other communities across the Commonwealth, feel included, that they feel like there's meaningful participation. They feel like their voices are actually shaping the solutions and not just uh, sort of checking the box. Maria Belen Power, Massachusetts' first undersecretary of environmental justice and equity. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you for having me. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live. With books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests, such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events. More at anunlikelystory.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, March Madness is underway, and the men's tournament tipped off yesterday with two big upsets. And we talked to New England Conservatory graduate Dan Tepper about his new album, which puts a spin on box compositions. That's coming up at 7.50 here on 90.9 WBUR. You can also listen on your commute with the WBUR mobile app. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. North Korea says yesterday's test of an intercontinental ballistic missile was in response to ongoing joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. NPR's Anthony Kuhn says Pyongyang's latest weapons test came hours before a summit between the leaders of South Korea and Japan. The Korean Central News Agency reports that North Korea launched its largest missile, the Hwasong-17, from Pyongyang's international airport. The report said the launch was in response to, quote, frantic, provocative and aggressive large-scale war drills, unquote, by the U.S. and South Korea. The North's Nodong Shinman newspaper, meanwhile, repeated Pyongyang's line that such exercises are rehearsals for an invasion and nuclear attack on North Korea. The joint exercises are scheduled to run for 11 days. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, says Kyiv will remember which countries turn their backs on Ukraine when the war with Russia ends. If anyone in the world thinks that the way this or that country behaved itself or treated Ukraine at the darkest moment of its history, and that that will not be taken into account in building future relations, these people just don't know how diplomacy works. 
Kuleba was speaking to the BBC, he also repeated calls for allies to speed up deliveries of weapons to Ukraine. This is NPR News. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Ed Markey wants to stop the Willow Project in Alaska. It's a massive oil drilling project that won approval from President Biden. The project is expected to operate for 30 years. Markey says eventually the oil produced by the Willow Project won't be needed. We're moving towards an all-electric vehicle future, and every new electric vehicle displaces a car which would be using oil. The Interior Department says ConocoPhillips holds the leasing rights to the land. It promises to take conservation measures to offset some of its drilling. A federal anti-abortion case being heard in Texas is getting plenty of attention here in Massachusetts. The case could impact states where abortion is legal. Jill Kaufman reports the lawsuit questions the FDA's approval of the drug Mifepristone. Attorney Carrie Baker, who teaches at Smith College, says a judge can't remove a drug from the market. He can rule the FDA did the drug approval wrong. And then the FDA says, okay, we'll do it right. I think the biggest risk is doctors who are afraid of legal liability who immediately stop offering abortion pills. Rebecca Hart Holder from Reproductive Equity Now in Boston says they have been hearing from confused Massachusetts health care providers, and she says the lawsuit was meant to cause confusion. The anti-abortion movement's goal has always been to ban abortion nationwide, and the decision in Dobbs with the fall of Roe was never about giving states control of abortion rights. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. The MBTA plans to run special trains to Foxborough for a few huge concerts later this year. There will be round trips between Boston and Foxborough for at least eight big events at Gillette Stadium. That list includes concerts by Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift, and Beyonce. It's 7.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic guitars for more than 50 years, because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Bruins shut out the Jets 3-0 last night in Winnipeg. The Bees will visit the Minnesota Wild tomorrow. In women's hockey, the Boston Pride lost to the Minnesota Whitecaps 5-2 last night in Game 1 of their playoff series. Game 2 in the best-of-three series will be tomorrow night in Waltham. Tonight, the Celtics are out west to play the Portland Trailblazers. More clouds than sun today with highs in the low 50s. Tonight, still cloudy and temperatures fall to a low around 40. Tomorrow, skies clear for a mostly sunny day with highs back in the low 50s. Sunday will be cooler, only in the upper 30s, but it'll be mostly sunny. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The U.S. government is giving the Chinese owners of TikTok an ultimatum. The app is owned by ByteDance, which is based in Beijing. And the Biden administration is demanding that ByteDance sell TikTok or face a nationwide ban. 
The administration says it's a national security risk for China to have access through TikTok to the personal data of Americans. But how high is that risk? And would a ban be constitutional? Anupam Chander is a professor of law and technology at Georgetown University. He is with us. Good morning. Good morning. Has the U.S. government proven that TikTok is a national security risk? I think right now the case is in the hypothetical. Because it's based in China and because China has laws that require local companies to share data under the uh, existing system with intelligence services, the worry is that it might be forced to share data of Americans with the Chinese government. So it's a hypothetical. Is it a hypothetical paired with any evidence so far? No, not as far as uh, the United States government has shown either to the public or to the court. But in your view, it is a legitimate concern. It's certainly a legitimate concern, but it's one that we share with lots of apps. There's lots of different ways to obtain data from uh, Americans, uh, and, and TikTok is only one of a host of different ways. And we certainly know that many United States companies have apps that collect data, but it is a different concern when a foreign country may be collecting that data. Absolutely. The Trump administration also tried to ban TikTok but lost in court. How is this attempt by Biden different or, or is it is it different? I think it is a little different. Um, the focus in the Trump administration seemed to be to pass it into the ownership of the hands of a company which was run by his political friends. Uh, this is hopefully not that uh, effort. And uh, I don't think the Biden administration will say it has to be done in 45 days, which was the Trump administration's guidelines, or said to be an, a very American corporation, which I think was the language that uh, President Trump used. So I think this will be different. Uh, but it still feels similar and surprisingly similar in, in, in other ways as well. Would there be other or better ways to deal with the security threats apps like this pose than banning them? And, and by the way, as we've seen in places like Iran, there are ways to get around bans. You find a private VPN, for example. Yeah. So Americans may turn to VPNs, which would be unusual. It would feel like some place like Iran or <laughs> China. Right. In, indeed, uh, when we're looking for VPNs to avoid uh, an app ban. Um, but there are other ways which which include, for example, making data not saleable on the, on the third market without permissions, etc. Uh, so we have lots of ability to gather data just by purchasing it on the open market. Um, not to mention auditing and other systems to make sure that the data is well protected. Mm. And you may only have time for a yes or no answer to this, but is there any precedent for a forced sale of a foreign-owned company? Yes. So we did require apps like uh, Grindr, which is a dating app, to be sold. But those apps pose different kinds of espionage risks than this app. Thank you very much. Quite interesting. That's Georgetown Law Professor Anupam Chander. Thank you. Thank you. The headline that one of our producers put on this next story on our story list is March Madness Madness. It was the opening day of college basketball's Division I men's tournament, and it featured the kind of upsets that justified the event's nickname. Here's NPR's Tom Goldman. 
March Madness has come a long way. The story goes, the phrase first was coined in 1939 by an Illinois high school official, then adopted by the NCAA tournament in the early 1980s. Now, March Madness has been trademarked and monetized, finally for the athletes too, but through it all, it still means the same. That was the moment at Sacramento's Golden One Center when Scrappy Princeton, has there ever been a Princeton team we haven't called Scrappy? But that was the moment the 15th seeded Tigers took the lead over number two Arizona on the way to a 59-55 win, the biggest upset of the day. A not so rare anymore 15 over two. This is the third straight year it's happened. Still, these kinds of first round March Madness moments bring out emotional extremes, joy, and then what Arizona head coach Tommy Lloyd talked about afterwards. If you want to do great things in life, you got to be willing to step in some dog once in a while and that that's just how it is and and, and we did today and, and, and a lot of it was self-inflicted but a lot of it was from a, a great opponent you know who has a lot of pride like princeton junior guard matt alaco i can't say i'm surprised you know this team has been so good all year so gritty on paper, you know, it's going to look like a big upset, but, you know, we believe in each other and we think we're a really good team. Happiness with a big upset and happiness with a win that didn't really move the March Madness needle. Northwestern fans are on their feet here at the Golden One Center. Northwestern's win over Boise State wasn't a stop-the-presses victory. It was significant to purple-clad Northwestern fans for two reasons. It was the Wildcats' second win ever in the men's tournament, and it was a win, something coaches say is so hard to do regardless of who's seated where. Paula Pretlow is a Northwestern alum. It's still a celebration. The fact that we are here today and we won and we move on to the next, if that's as far as we get, so be it. Of course, there are places in the country where one win won't cut it. The Alabama Crimson Tide are the tournament's overall number one seed and the most significant threat in recent memory to March Madness joy. Three Alabama players have been connected to the January shooting death of a young woman, Jamia Harris. One who was kicked off the team was indicted for murder. Another, star Brandon Miller, allegedly delivered the gun used in the shooting but wasn't charged with anything and has kept playing. That's provoked such anger that this week Miller showed up at the tournament with an armed security guard. On top of this, Alabama's playing its first two games in Birmingham, where Jamia Harris lived. What's a Crimson Tide fan to do? By the sound of it, at Legacy Arena yesterday, cheer for a 21-point Alabama win. But Birmingham resident Chris Hopkins said, it doesn't mean the killing is forgotten. It's unbelievable that somebody would do that in that situation for that reason. That's just crazy. That's never acceptable, but I mean, <laughs> as a fan, you know, you still, still got to root for your team, so. It's a split brain approach many college basketball fans may have to employ as Alabama is expected to advance deep into the tournament. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Sacramento. This is NPR News.
Coming up next on Morning Edition, over the past year, streaming services like HBO Max have pulled original shows from their platforms rather than continue airing them. NPR's Planet Money team investigates why. And in our next hour, teachers are suing the state of Florida over a law they say leads to book bans. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says it's a hoax. Mostly cloudy and low 50s today, overcast and low 40s tonight, mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the low 50s. Mostly sunny on Sunday, but only in the upper 30s. If you're headed to the St. Patrick's Day Parade in South Boston on Sunday, we have everything you need to know before you go. That includes the parade route, parking restrictions, and how to get there. Check it out at WBUR.org. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. Certapro.com, that's Serta with a C. The number of people flying in and out of Logan Airport these days is exceeding expectations. Massport expects more than 33 million passengers at Logan this fiscal year. That's up 8 percent from last year. But the number is still well below where it was before the pandemic. Massport says a full recovery to pre-pandemic numbers isn't expected until at least next year. Boston planners are signing off on more than 1,000 new residential units in the city. The Boston Planning and Development Agency approved a series of projects yesterday. The biggest one will involve more than 500 apartments along Soldiers Field Road in Alston. The agency also approved new housing in Dorchester, Roslindale, and South Boston. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Over the past year, dozens of TV shows have quietly disappeared from streaming platforms like HBO Max and Paramount+. Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi of our Planet Money podcast looked into why. A few years ago, Alyssa Nutting got into TV at what felt like the perfect moment. All these new streaming platforms hungry for content were popping up to compete with Netflix. And one of them, HBO Max, offered Alyssa's dystopian dark comedy show, Made for Love, a place to call home. Were you an HBO stan? Oh, absolutely. The Wire, Sopranos, True Detective. And now Made for Love. (laughs) Right, yes. So it, it felt great. Even when she found out the show would not be picked up for a third season, she took solace in the idea that her work would still stream on forever. So when last December she found out her show was being removed from the platform, she was perplexed. How does that make any sense? You know, like uh, if they have more shows on their streamer and things for people to watch, isn't it kind of like more money for them? And this just doesn't feel logical. From a finance perspective, it's totally logical. There is a ruthless accounting at work here. David Offenberg teaches film finance at Loyola Marymount University. 
He explains that last year, HBO Max's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, went through a merger that left it around $50 billion in debt and desperate to cut costs. Offenberg says removing all these shows helped them do that in two ways. First, HBO Max is trying to save on residuals. Streaming companies pay residuals to the writers and directors and actors of their original shows every year those shows stay on the platform. So by removing a show like Made for Love, streamers could be saving millions. Their second motivation, David says, has to do with changes in the streaming business. For several years, platforms were battling for market share, making tons of new shows to win subscribers. But then, last year, Netflix announced they'd lost subscribers for the first time in a decade. That was the moment where the mentality in streaming switched from growth to maximizing revenue and minimizing costs. All of a sudden, shows that weren't bringing in lots of new subscribers or helping to retain them started to look like costly liabilities. Unless, of course, someone else wanted to buy them. So all of these shows that HBO Max has taken down represent a library of assets that could be sold. In fact, big HBO shows like Westworld are already being licensed out to ad-supported streaming services like Tubi. Though so far, that hasn't happened for Alyssa Nutting's show Made for Love. David Offenberg says what happened to her show is a sign of the times, as other platforms follow in HBO Max's footsteps. I think the peak of streaming was 2021, where we had a ton of streaming services with a ton of great shows at low subscription prices. And we are never going back to that. The recent streaming golden age, where we've been served more Netflix than we could ever possibly chill to, may be coming to an end. Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Another hour of Morning Edition is still ahead. Then at 11, it's Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Uh, great to be here. Really wide range of stuff that we're covering on Radio Boston today. Excited mm-hmm. to tell you about it. Um, we that we have an emerging group of black women leaders in higher ed, which is a, as you know, huge and critical industry yeah. here in Massachusetts. So we are bringing together leaders from Simmons University, Worcester Polytechnic, and Roxbury Community College, which represent a huge range of the students, the kinds of students we educate, to really dive deep in the industry, look at their leadership experiences, what they think the new challenges are, what's imperative for this huge driver of sort of future economic security in our state. So we'll go deep with them. And then... Hmm. Are you familiar with the Boston Strangler? Oh, I am, yeah. yeah. So uh, many know Hulu's got a new movie out. Um, writer-director Matt Ruskin, who grew up in Watertown, Chris Cooper, actor who is local, um, are both both join us. It's really interesting. The film is about so much more than the Boston Strangler. So you saw it. I did. That, okay. well, I got to preview it. Now, so. here's the question yeah. that many people have. How are the Boston accents? Not bad. Most people don't try. <laughs> that's why? That's because right. they just don't try. They don't try. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, I'd be interested if you ask them about that. I did. You'll see. All right. Thank you, TC. <laughs> Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 751. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Give it when Bono and The Edge performed at NPR's Tiny Desk, they were joined by a high school choir. On the road. It was, fun, it was funny because we all knew it was an accident, but Bono was like, he likes it, so we, we just did it. How students helped shape the performance of two of music's biggest stars on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. If any of you listening are piano players or used to take piano lessons, you may know Johann Sebastian Bach's two-part inventions. Pianist and composer Dan Tepfer says these short pieces are in the bloodstream of many young pianists. These inventions really shape how everyone plays the piano. They're so deceptively simple, but the the musical content is so profound that it's really this wonderful way of introducing children to what the greatest music can be. Bach wrote these exercises for a total of 15 major and minor keys out of the 24 available. So Tepfer improvised pieces for the missing keys. You can hear his reinventions on his new album out today called Inventions, Reinventions. Dan Tepfer told me he thinks about music as telling a story. In classical narrative structure, you have a protagonist, a hero or a heroine to, to follow on the journey, on the story, and then something happens and they're thrust into chaos, into the unknown. During act two, the, the protagonist will go on a series of, of tests or some kind of journey, and Act 3, we typically find them back at home. And this is exactly what Bach is doing in the inventions. And I, I was so struck by it that I asked myself, could I do a free improvisation that tells a story following these, these same principles? So although many people would think of narrative and protagonists as, as writing or a book, you see the parallel, the equivalent in music. Absolutely. Uh, j- just to give an example, the first invention goes do, 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 do. that's our character and we are constantly re-exposed to the same character and we start to get to know them and then Bach turns that character upside down and so what we're seeing is is different facets of this character in the same way that a writer might make a character more than two-dimensional in in a play or a movie. Dan, the best way for our listeners to understand what you've done would be for them to hear it. Is there a particular one you think is best for explaining what you've done and your approach? Absolutely. For example, if you listen to my first improvisation in D-flat major, I came up with a theme. And that immediately is my character. This is my protagonist on the story I'm going to tell. But suddenly, we'll find ourselves in a new key.
minor keys, for example, have a real bitter sweetness to them. You know, if, if you're telling a story, our character might have a moment of loss or, or, or be challenged with some deep emotional reflection. But eventually it's time to go home, and then as gracefully as possible, we return. Some of what you've done feels almost jazzy, like, like a blend of jazz and classical music. Is that what you were aiming for? I'm aiming to be myself, to be in conversation with Bach, not to be playing on his turf, but to be using his ideas on my turf, which I think is, is what any good conversation is. I'm a jazz musician. I, I grew up with jazz. Um, my whole approach to improvisation really comes from jazz. So if you hear a moment that sounds jazzy, that's just because there's quite a bit of jazz in me. The pieces in minor keys, not surprisingly, often sound less cheerful, more dissonant. The opposite of that is that some of your music had me actually tapping my head and my feet along with it, which some people might think you'd expect from poppier music. Are you trying to get listeners to think differently about what classical music can be when you're improvising? I'm not trying to get my listeners to do anything. I'm just trying to, to express myself. On the other hand, one of the things I love about Bach is that he is able to bring a sense of sincere joy to his music. And when I listen to it, there's never anything about it that feels corny or silly or superficial to me. The joy is fully earned and, and fully owned, I would say. That's something that, that I think has been challenging for me, is to bring sincere joy to my music. I think in jazz, there can be a tendency to want to act cool, a tendency to not wear your heart on your sleeve and to be embarrassed at doing that. And that's actually one of the, the things that I enjoy doing the most in this project is searching for that sense of joy and not shying away from it. So whether I'm dealing with the music of Bach or whether I'm dealing with my own music or whether I'm dealing with the music of, of my peers, uh, it really comes down to the same thing, which is, can I be myself today? would think about you filling in gaps in his work? I mean, I hesitate to even use the term filling in gaps in his work. There's nothing incomplete really about the inventions. It's worth remembering here that in his own lifetime, Bach was most famous as an improviser. In fact, um, people traveled from all over Europe to go hear Bach improvise. And it's really only after his death that he became most famous as a composer. So improvisation was absolutely at the core of Bach's being. And I would hope that, that he would be at least intrigued and, and maybe touched by the fact that, that someone 300 years after he wrote these pieces is trying to, in his own way, engage with the abstract ideas supporting Bach's work. That's pianist and composer Dan Tepfer. His new album, Inventions, Reinventions, is out today. Dan, thank you, and I loved listening to this album. 
Oh, thank you so much. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Funding for WBUR's environmental coverage comes from an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live, with books, games, cards, decor, and more for specific interests such as the environment and climate change. In-person and live virtual events, more at anunlikelystory.com. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Eleven big banks are offering a $30 billion lifeline to First Republic Bank, a smaller lender driven to the verge of collapse by Silicon Valley Bank's failure. It's Friday, March 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, seven Virginia sheriff's deputies are charged with murder in connection to the death of a black man at a state mental hospital. And the U.S. Senate's first Latina member describes how immigration reform is dividing Nevada voters. You know, it was part of the conversation for voters in Nevada, and and rightfully so. One in five Nevadans is an immigrant. Plus, Florida teachers are challenging a state law that some say led to book bans. Also this hour. They should show that they're responsible with power. Right now, it looks like they're power hungry. What Democrats are doing with their control of Michigan state government. Mostly cloudy today in the 50s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The White House says it's closely monitoring the developments at First Republic and other regional banks. NPR's Windsor Johnston says a group of banks announced a roughly $30 billion rescue of First Republic yesterday as part of an effort to stabilize the banking system. In a statement, the banks, including Wells Fargo and Citigroup, say the rescue plan is a reflection of their confidence in the U.S. banking system. First Republic Bank had been teetering in the wake of the sudden failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Both had a high number of uninsured deposits, as does First Republic, which prompted concerns that customers would panic and race to pull their money out. NPR's Windsor Johnston reporting. President Biden is welcoming the Irish Prime Minister to the White House this morning to help celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Irish leader Leo Varadkar will also meet members of Congress today on Capitol Hill, where he will have lunch. Vice President Harris was in Iowa yesterday, where she said the Biden administration is closely following a lawsuit that's playing out in a courtroom in Texas. That is where groups opposed to abortion rights are suing, arguing the Food and Drug Administration improperly approved a widely used medication abortion drug. From Iowa Public Radio, Natalie Krebs has more. Harris's visit came a day after a federal judge in Texas heard arguments in a case that could take the drug Mifepristone off the market. It was approved by the Food and Drug Administration two decades ago. Harris told a panel of local leaders and abortion rights advocates that the case threatens the country's public health system as a whole. So we take this very seriously and we are prepared to do whatever we may and can if the court um, rules in a way that is contrary to what we believe is in the best interests of the public health of America. 
If the lawsuit succeeds, it could have wide-ranging effects on abortion access, as well as the FDA approval process going forward. For NPR News, I'm Natalie Krebs in Des Moines. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has signed legislation that adds LGBTQ protections to the state's civil rights law. Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluta has more. Efforts to expand the law have languished for decades, but adding sexual orientation and gender identity protections to the civil rights law was a priority this year for Democrats, who just took control of state government. Governor Whitmer said adding protections that would allow LGBTQ people to file civil rights complaints is a moral imperative, but also an opportunity to attract young people to the state. Come to Michigan. You will be respected and protected under the law, right? The new law cements a court decision in favor of LGBTQ rights. This would help ensure that won't be reversed by future decisions. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta. You're listening to NPR. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state now has its first ever Undersecretary of Environmental Justice and Equity. Governor Healy appointed former community organizer Maria Blend Power to the role. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtel reports she started the job last week. Power says her position will help elevate considerations of social justice when the state confronts environmental issues. Environmental justice is a disproportionate impact on black and brown people, on low-income people, people of color. And so, you know, we think about environmental racism and environmental classism, and that seems a little bit more obvious, uh, but that's what it is. Power says she's thinking about clean air, water, and soil efforts, and retrofitting buildings to convert them to electricity. Above all, though, she wants to make sure she's listening to residents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. The Massachusetts State Auditor plans to investigate the use of non-disclosure agreements in state government. Diana DiZaglio says she aims to see how much money has been spent on covering up harassment and discrimination. The audit will apply to all state agencies. DiZaglio hasn't said how many years of settlements she plans to review. Governor Healy's office says it'll review any audit requests. There's been no promises yet from House and Senate leadership. The largest firefighters union in the country is suing a Quincy-based group over the forever chemicals known as PFAS. The National Fire Protection Association sets the national standards for firefighting gear, but the International Association of Firefighters says that gear contains toxic PFAS chemicals, and it wants the standards changed. The NFPA has not commented on the suit. You might want to wear a little green today since it's St. Patrick's Day. The Irish holiday is celebrated by a lot of people here with food, dancing, and music. She wore At the Irish Cultural Center in Canton, the Irish band Green Road will perform songs like that one. It's called Galway Shawl. The center's Maureen Kelly Lenehan says the Irish who've made Massachusetts their new home, like her, are proud of their heritage. Being away from home, being away from Ireland, makes us prouder. Being able to celebrate it here and be accepted. And it's amazing how many non-Irish people like to celebrate it with us. (laughs) The big St. Patrick's Day parade in South Boston takes place on Sunday. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America, usps.com slash moving forward. The Bruins snapped a two-game losing streak last night in Winnipeg. They beat the Jets 3-0. The Bees will visit the Minnesota Wild tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics are on the road to play the Portland Trailblazers. Mostly cloudy today and warmer. It'll get into the lower 50s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures falling to around 40. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the lower 50s. Mostly sunny and breezy on Sunday. It'll be in the upper 30s. It should stay dry through next week. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 8.07. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Some of this country's biggest banks are sending money to a bank in trouble. First Republic Bank is headquartered in San Francisco. That's not far from the headquarters of Silicon Valley Bank, which failed a week ago. And although First Republic appears healthier, it's been facing some of the same pressures and a lot of anxiety. So other banks passed the hat. And it's a fairly large hat, $30 billion. NPR's David Gura joins us now. David, good morning. Good morning, Steve. How did their fellow bankers come to rescue First Republic? Well, this is a pretty extraordinary deal, and it came together over just 48 hours as a result of the incredible volatility that we've seen on Wall Street in shares of some of America's small and mid-sized lenders after regulators closed Silicon Valley Bank and also Signature Bank. First Republic Bank has been caught up in that. It faced an exodus of customers as they moved their money to other larger banks. And while that happened, the lender's stock got hammered. Driving this, Steve, was worried that First Republic could find itself in the same boat as those two failed lenders, that it could also face a bank run. The way this is going to work is four of the big banks, including Citigroup and JPMorgan Chase, are each going to put up $5 billion dollars. And the seven other lenders are going to put up the rest. And effectively what they're doing here is opening up a bank account or bank accounts at First Republic, and they're putting their money in, just like you might or I might, Steve, except it's $30 billion. Anyway, that money is going to replenish those coffers that have been emptied out over the last week. And the hope is it'll both shore up confidence in First Republic and it will bolster confidence in banking more broadly. Just so I know, David, if they open a new account and deposit $30 billion, do they get free checking with that? (laughs) I think that could be arranged. Hopefully that could be arranged. Okay, so you said some customers were taking money out, and that was part of the pressure here. Why would they be panicking? This is a lender that in some ways does have a similar profile to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. It has a lot of wealthy individuals as customers and businesses as clients. What's quite remarkable here, Steve, is like many lenders that have come under pressure this week, it was not known to have any big underlying problems, yet it was caught up in the sell-off. Tim Coffey is a bank analyst with the brokerage Janney. From a credit perspective, it's a very safe institution. They don't do a lot of risky loans. The majority of the portfolio is single-family residential mortgage loans. And those loans are to high-net-worth individuals who deposit large sums. What First Republic does have, Steve, is a lot of deposits that are large, too big to be insured by the FDIC. And like many other banks, it's invested in government bonds that are now less valuable because the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates aggressively over the last year. First Republic is facing potential losses because of that. Okay, so their investments lose money. They've got less resources. Depositors say, I'm not fully insured. So they start taking out money. And suddenly, I guess it would be like that scene and It's a Wonderful Life. You have to pay every depositor every dollar they ask for. You close. 
Yeah, and also these two bank failures have made Wall Street very nervous. There's widespread worry that regardless of a bank's profile, how healthy its balance sheet is, another bank could suffer a similar implosion. And that Janney analyst, Tim Coffey, says a lot of this fear is being driven by emotion, not by data. What we have right now in the banking industry is a crisis of confidence. And this new deal, Steve, is designed to tackle that head on. So is it going to succeed then? Well, the hope is that, but things are so volatile right now, we don't know for sure. We don't know how many customers left First Republic over the last week or how much money they took with them when they left. Tim Coffey told me he thinks that $30 billion is going to be, as he put it, an adequate amount. The regulators certainly say they appreciate the deal. In a joint statement that's just two sentences long, the Treasury Secretary and the Federal Reserve Chair, the heads of some other agencies, said the bank's show of support is, as they put it, most welcome, Steve, and that it, quote, demonstrates the resilience of the banking system. NPR's David Gura, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. We go next to the intersection of immigration and politics. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada has proposals on immigration, which she is just barely in a position to make. Just before she came on the line yesterday, I looked up her margin of re-election among the almost one million votes cast in Nevada in 2022. I knew it was close, but I'd forgotten how close, like 8,000 votes or something, wasn't it? It was, 7,928. Not that anybody was counting. Exactly. (laughs) So fewer than 8,000 votes, a very hard re-election campaign. How did immigration factor into it? You know, it was part of the conversation for voters in Nevada, and and rightfully so. One in five Nevadans is an immigrant. Cortez Masto represents a state that is divided. There's one really big metro area, Las Vegas, two blue counties, and a lot of rural red ones. When you listen, you hear a lawmaker trying to balance different interests. The Democrat wants to cut off the flow of people arriving in this country illegally. But she also wants to make it easier for people already here to gain legal status. Some Republicans talk of stopping immigrants from committing crimes, but Cortez Masto talks of stopping crimes against immigrants. For too long, we've had these arbitrary barriers set up that have kept our immigrants from being able to adjust their status. And it has allowed fraudsters to take advantage of vulnerable families. You're talking about someone who says, I can help you adjust your status and then takes their money and disappears. I know too many families that literally were taken advantage of, which has implicated their ability to actually get on track for permanent residency. When you use that phrase, adjust their status, do you run across some Nevada voters who say, wait a minute, that's soft peddling it. They are here illegally. You know, there are conversations that I have like that with Nevadans, but when I explain it to them, because I think there's a lot of emotion and misinformation intentionally that's been put out there particularly from the previous president, who called them all criminals. So to me, it's about showing up and having these conversations and explaining what's going on. Because I can guarantee you, in my state, whether you're in northern Nevada or southern Nevada, there is support for these families, both by Democrats, Republicans, and our independents, when they understand what we're talking about. Because a lot of these families, they know. The families are already in the community. They're working quite often two jobs. They're going through school. They want to have a future, but it's limited because they can't get that permanent path to a residency. You, among some other Democratic lawmakers, have opposed lifting Title 42, the pandemic-era restriction that has made it easier for the United States to remove people who cross the border illegally. Do you think that you're representing the majority view in Nevada, regardless of whether people have an immigrant background or not? People, rightfully so, 
are watching what's happening at the border and saying, well, it's too chaotic. Title 42 and the concerns that I had very open with the administration, and I thought they were wrong, told them that to repeal 42 without a plan because I knew there would be a large surge at the border. We have to put funding into the border there where we have more funding for immigration judges. We have more funding for that orderly process that needs to go through. We have to make sure we're addressing the needs for inspection. It's tempting for me to think that when you say the immigration system is broken, you mean there should be an orderly way for people to get in. I think that we could question some other lawmakers who would say the immigration system is broken because it needs to more successfully keep people out. Is that really the divide here? I hope not, because I suspect that's what some of the right wing are saying. Just keep everybody out. Shut the borders. Nobody comes in. But that's not all of my colleagues that I am talking to, including some Republicans, because listen, Steve, here's a few solutions. We've got to modernize, I think, our ports of entry to address the drug trafficking. I think that's common amongst both Democrats and Republicans that we'd want to do that. And then the way that our country handles our asylum, just it doesn't work. And I've heard that from both of my colleagues, both Republicans and Democrats, that we've got to fix the asylum process. And what my concern and what I saw in the past is There has been leadership that has stopped us from moving forward. It appears that Title 42 is going to expire regardless in May. And the administration has reportedly been talking about other measures that they can use, harsh measures in some cases, to deter people from crossing. Things like family detention, for example. Would Mm -hmm. you favor harsher measures in place of Title 42 to keep down the flow? No, and I've said this to the administration as well with respect to family detention. It was wrong under Trump and it's wrong now. There was a proposal for a transit ban. Uh, To me, again, wrong proposal. That's a piecemeal solution to a broken immigration system. So uh, there's things that they are doing that are too harsh, that are not helping us solve this problem, uh, when in actuality we could come together and figure out the right way to do this. Senator Catherine Cortez-Masto, thanks so much. Thank you. A teacher's union is suing Florida's Department of Education. The lawsuit is the first to be filed over a new law that critics say is leading to book bans in schools. Carrie Sheridan of member station WUSF reports. The Florida Education Association filed what's known as an administrative legal challenge. It's not challenging the law itself, which requires schools to be transparent about curriculum and library materials that was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis last year. Instead, the suit says the Department of Education expanded the scope of the law, known as HB 1467, and went too far when it issued training for school librarians this year. Sky Perryman is with Democracy Forward, a legal advocacy group which has lawyers on the case. What has happened here is Florida officials under the DeSantis administration have flagrantly and unlawfully exceeded the quite narrow authority that HB 1467 provided the Department of Education. For one, she says the state redefined the term school library to include any collection of books in a school, even those in classrooms. Here's an excerpt of a training video all school media specialists in Florida have to watch. Elementary classroom libraries are a type of school library. Materials in all school libraries. Words like these have led some teachers to empty their classroom shelves, says Andrew Spar. He's president of the Florida Education Association. We've all seen teachers being told to box up their classroom libraries, to take the books off the shelves and put them aside if they are not books provided by the school or district. 
He says that's not what state lawmakers intended with HB 1467. When they were debating it, they took out specifically classroom libraries so that they would not be covered by this law, and the Department of Education, by rule, put it back in. The suit alleges that the state harmed hundreds of thousands of teachers and students. Jay Wolfson, a professor at the University of South Florida, says no matter how the administrative hearing goes, appeals are likely. The courts will ultimately determine if the governor's interpretation and application of the law is within his constitutional authority. The Florida Department of Education did not respond to a request for comment on the lawsuit. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Tampa. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we look at the impact of a Supreme Court case decided 60 years ago this week that guaranteed criminal defendants the right to a lawyer. And in 20 minutes, how Democrats are taking advantage of having control of Michigan government for the first time in decades. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston. Jack, I think I found something. Three women were strangled over the last two weeks. You're on the lifestyle desk. You're not covering a homicide. I think the murders are connected. Actor Chris Cooper and writer and director Matt Ruskin join us to talk about their film, The Boston Strangler. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. There's a little Irish music for this St. Patrick's Day. Don't let sorting through your options for what to do today slow down your fun. The Common Podcast has a rundown of the best places to catch live Celtic music during St. Patrick's Day weekend. Find The Common on your podcast app. And if you're heading to the St. Patrick's Day Parade in South Boston on Sunday, visit WBUR.org. Before you go, we have a rundown of the parade route and street closures to save you the time and hassle. And your forecast, mostly cloudy today with a high near 53. Tonight, mostly cloudy. With a low around 40. Tomorrow, a great start to the weekend with mostly sunny skies and a high near 53. Sunday will be mostly sunny too, but colder. We'll have a high of only 38 and it'll be breezy. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup to protect PCs, Macs, mobile devices, and servers, along with iDrive E2 offering hot S3 compatible object storage at iDrive.com. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. This week marks the 60th anniversary of a landmark Supreme Court ruling. In Gideon v. Wainwright, the High Court said everyone, regardless of income, has a fundamental right to a lawyer. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland. Criminal defense attorneys put the government's case to the test. In so doing, they make sure that every part of our system is fairer, more equal, and more just. But does everyone truly get a robust legal defense? Because public defenders face tight budgets and high demand. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has been reporting on this for years. She's on the line now. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning, Sasha. Carrie, what do public defenders tell you about their overall situation now? What I'm hearing is really heavy pressure and not a lot of respect. Stan Herman is executive director of New York County Defender Services. He talked about some of those challenges at an event last night in Washington. Understaffed, crushing caseloads, underpaid and undervalued. And this is a conscious decision that our legislatures make throughout this country. Other public defenders told me providing a robust public defense isn't just a nice thing to do or a good thing to do. This is a constitutional requirement. A requirement, but also an expensive one. So how do state and local governments try to meet that requirement when it's also very costly? And how do they make sure people with lower incomes have lawyers to represent them in criminal courts? There's a nonprofit group called the Sixth Amendment Center. They surveyed state and local governments to see how much they're spending. And the center says funding for public defenders is still a drop in the bucket compared to what states pay for police and jails. But they said things have gotten somewhat better in the last decade. More states like Michigan are investing more money and doing more to monitor public defense lawyers and to create standards for them. The American Civil Liberties Union has filed about a dozen lawsuits to try to get states to live up to their obligations, and some of those cases are still going on. Yasmin Cater is deputy legal director at the ACLU. Because of these failures, the economically marginalized and low-income people, many of whom are Black and other people of color, don't get the legal representation that lives up to what the Constitution mandates. Carrie, what's being done to fix that? Uh, This week, two Democratic senators, Cory Booker of New Jersey, Dick Durbin of Illinois, introduced a bill that would create a $250 million program to help states hire public defenders and investigators. And there's stuff going on within the Biden administration, too. The Justice Department reestablished its office called Access to Justice and made a former public defender the leader there. Uh, All this month, senior justice officials have been traveling all over the country to meet with public defenders and listen to them. They're trying to deliver a message that states can use federal grant money to help fund public defense and public defenders and also to try to achieve pay parity, this issue that public defenders often make a lot less than prosecutors. Attorney General Merrick Garland this week basically put out a call to arms. He said young law students should consider public defense work, a job that he called both necessary and noble in many respects. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you. My pleasure. It's Friday, the day we hear from StoryCorps, also coincidentally the day that stocks in facial tissues normally rise. When Jimmy Neely was a senior at Longview High School in Texas, he met a sophomore named Becky. It was 1969, and soon after they met, he joined the Navy. That is where their love story begins. I thought about you all the time. I was just, you know, pins and needles waiting to get my letters from you. I had already bought 
an engagement ring, and I was pretty sure you were going to say yes. <laughs> I didn't even look at the ring. I didn't even have you open the box, and I just said, no, I can't marry you. My mom did not want me to be involved with anyone in the military during the time of Vietnam because you don't know what's going to happen. In the years afterwards, I would run into your sister. I would ask about you, and she let me know that you had married. Kay and I had been together for 34 years as a married couple, and she had been really ill the last eight years of her life. It was like I was widowed for so long before. It was just really, you know, lonely. I wasn't even thinking really about dating or nothing. It never really crossed my mind. After my husband Steve passed, I saw your picture. You were wearing your police uniform, and I thought, is that my Jimmy Neely? I think it is. And I saw then that you had become a widower. When I first seen your message, I'm thinking, well, it'd be great just to see her, and yeah, let's get together and have coffee and catch up on old times. We drove up. Our cars pulled up at the very same time. I seen the blonde hair, and I said... (laughs) That's Becky. (laughs) I felt like I was a teenager again, going on my first date when I was 15. And it didn't take long for me to realize how I was falling in love with you. It seems you've always moved faster than I have. I didn't know if I was ready. And then my son, he pulled me aside one day and he said, Mom, why would you avoid happiness just because you're scared? So I decided, well, I'm going to ask you again. You took me back to that same spot. Well, I told you yes this time when you proposed. I was happier than I've been in forever, it seemed like. I was so excited. It's fun being married to you. Sometimes I I wake up and every day I thank God that he's brought you back into my life. Jimmy and Becky Neely for StoryCorps. They married on Valentine's Day in 2020 in Living Rock, Wall, Texas. Their conversation is archived in the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now, so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, seven sheriff's deputies in Virginia have been charged with murder for smothering a man as, he's, as he lay on the ground in handcuffs and leg shackles. It's 829. Coming to City Space Monday, March 27th, March for Our Lives co-founder David Hogg will discuss the five-year anniversary of the Parkland school shooting. Tickets at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. There are protests today in France after the government raised the country's minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. French President Emmanuel Macron invoked special constitutional powers to implement the change without Parliament's approval, saying it was necessary. The move could result in a no-confidence vote as early as next week. Reporter Lisa Bryant has more from Paris. Most people here are opposed to the reform, and Macron didn't appear to have the votes in the lower house of parliament, uh, especially from the center-right Republican Party. So rather than risk a vote, he used a rarely used constitutional lever, Article 49.3, which allows him to enact the reform without a vote of parliament. Thousands of demonstrators have been out on the streets of the French capital and elsewhere disrupting traffic. President Biden is hosting Ireland's prime minister at the White House on this St. Patrick's Day. NPR's Kristen Wright reports. The White House says President Biden and Taoiseach Leo Varadkar will discuss shared support for Ukraine, as well as a proposed plan to address contentious Brexit trade issues. The two leaders will reaffirm their commitment to the Good Friday Agreement. It brought a formal end to years of violent conflict in Northern Ireland. Biden has said he plans to visit there and the Republic of Ireland to mark the deal's 25th anniversary. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. One of the largest banks in Massachusetts is getting financial support from its competition. First Republic Bank got a $30 billion shot in the arm yesterday. Eleven other banks agreed to deposit that money with First Republic. WBUR's Beth Healy reports the goal is to calm fears of another bank failure. First Republic is based in San Francisco, but it's the sixth largest retail bank in Massachusetts. It has five branches in the Boston area and nearly $18 billion in deposits, much of that from wealthy clients and business owners, as well as nonprofits. Boston-based State Street Bank was part of the rescue group, along with Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and other major banks. The move follows three bank failures last week, notably Silicon Valley Bank, which also had a large Boston presence. Federal regulators called the bank rescue most welcome and said it showed the system was resilient. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. MBTA officials won't say when some speed restrictions will be lifted on the T. It's been a week since they put end-to-end speed restrictions on the whole system. Most lines are back to normal, although there are plenty of slow zones on each line. The entire green line is still running at reduced speeds. The New Hampshire Senate has approved a bill that would force teachers to let parents know if their child is using a different gender identity. It passed along party lines yesterday. Supporters say the bill will strengthen family relationships. Those against it say it violates the state's anti-discrimination laws. The bill heads to the House next. A similar proposal didn't pass there last year after Republican Governor Kristen Nunu threatened to, ve- threatened to veto it. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins topped the Jets 3-0 last night in Winnipeg. The Bees will visit the Minnesota Wild tomorrow. In women's hockey, the Boston Pride lost to the Minnesota Whitecaps 5-2 last night in the first game of their playoff series. Game two in the best-of-three series will be tomorrow night in Waltham. Tonight, the Celtics visit the Portland Trailblazers. More clouds than sun today with highs in the low 50s. Tonight, still cloudy and temperatures fall 
fall to a low around 40. Tomorrow, skies clear for a mostly sunny day with highs back in the low 50s. Sunday will be cooler, only in the upper 30s, but it'll be mostly sunny. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com/wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services LLC and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Authorities in Richmond, Virginia, have accused police and hospital workers of murder. Seven sheriff's deputies took a man into custody and then to a mental hospital. He died in the process. The man was Ivo Otieno, and he was black. The seven officers are of a variety of races, and we want to note there will be detailed accounts of violence in this next conversation. Whitney Evans of our member station VPM in Richmond has been following this. Good morning. Good morning. Would you talk us through the facts, at least as far as they're known? Yeah, so this all began March 3rd when a neighbor called the police to report a potential burglary. The suspect was 28-year-old Ivo Otieno. Officers and mental health crisis workers on the scene recognized this was a mental health situation, and so they took Otieno to a local hospital. But sometime during that visit, the officers say Otieno started acting out and assaulting them. So he was taken to jail and charged with vandalism, assault, and disorderly conduct. His mother said he did not have access to his medication while in jail. And after three days, deputies transferred him over to the state hospital, where he died soon after arriving. Just so I understand, someone called police because because they felt there was maybe a burglary and I guess his attorney or his family's attorney would say he was just behaving in an unusual manner. Is that right? That's right. Yes. His attorney said that uh, something along the lines of, quote, he was rearranging solar panels in his neighbor's yard. Hmm. What do we know about the cause of death? Uh, Just a reminder for listeners, this may be hard to hear graphic details. Um, The medical examiner hasn't ruled on the cause of death yet. But there's surveillance footage, and it hasn't been released to the public. The family and their lawyers were able to view the footage yesterday, however. They described Otieno as being carried lifelessly, handcuffed, wearing leg irons, slumping over, and even nude in parts of the video. And they say he was not posing a threat or being violent. His mother, Caroline Ouko, brought her son to the United States from Kenya when he was four. She told reporters he'd been managing his mental illness for years and had been previously hospitalized. What I saw today was heartbreaking America. It was disturbing. It was traumatic. My son was tortured. And they say there was a knee on his neck and the weight of multiple people on his body while he was face down on the floor. I guess we should emphasize we're hearing a description of the video. We have not seen the video, but this is a very familiar sounding description when you hear about a knee on the neck. Right. Attorney Ben Crump thinks so, too. He's representing the family in this case. And you may remember that he also represented the families of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. He says officers and hospital employees had OTNO pinned down for several minutes. Why would any law enforcement officer put a knee on the neck of a person who is face down, handcuffed, and restrained? Why would anybody not have enough common sense to say, we've seen this movie before. So how are local officials responding then? 
Well, seven deputies involved have been placed on administrative leave. They, along with three state hospital workers, have all been charged with second-degree murder. Whitney, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Whitney Evans of our member station VPM in Richmond, Virginia. Republicans in red states like Florida and Texas are moving further to the right on issues including abortion and LGBTQ rights. But in Michigan, Democrats have complete power for the first time in nearly 40 years. And they've wasted no time getting their top priorities to the governor's desk. Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network brings us this look at how Democrats are governing after decades in the political wilderness. Governor Gretchen Whitmer delivered her State of the State address this year with something no Democratic governor in Michigan has had since the early 80s, a legislature willing to pass her agenda, even if they only have a narrow majority. We spoke with a clear voice in November. We want the ability to raise a family without breaking the bank. We want strong protections for our fundamental rights to vote and control our own bodies. Within the first two months, Democrats passed their centerpiece tax plan, a bill to repeal the state's defunct 1931 abortion ban, and legislation to create civil rights protections for LGBTQ folks. Some votes, like the civil rights expansion, came with a little bipartisan support. The bill is passed. The abortion ban repeal fell closer to party lines. Democrats like Representative Lori Pohutsky relished literally ripping the page out of the books. And I am grateful that we are finally, finally addressing it. Votes on the Democrats' big tax cut, however, got messy. They folded in business incentive funding one of their own members wouldn't support and other spending Republicans didn't like. When the House vote did come up after hours of waiting, no one was allowed to speak. You could feel and hear the Republican anger. This comes after years of Democrats feeling powerless in the minority, often being gaveled down. They know uh, what they did, and I'll just leave it at that. That's House Speaker Joe Tate. When asked, he didn't elaborate much more, but has said he's happy with what they've accomplished. Voters exercise their power uh, in terms of what they wanted us to do. So uh, for us to have this majority, they want us to be effective. And we've shown that. Next up, Democrats are rushing to pass the last of their early goals before going on spring break. That means getting labor priorities like repealing the state's 2012 right-to-work law to the governor. Meanwhile, Republicans are hoping that speed backfires. While their colleagues are selling the proposals as pro-worker, Republicans argue they're unpopular and expensive. Minority leader Matt Hall. This is the beginning of the Democrat overreach that's going to lead to their demise and the Republicans taking back the House. Associated Builders and Contractors of Michigan CEO Jimmy Green was among the main voices advocating for right to work back in 2012. He says he understands why Democrats are moving so fast this time around, but warns them against overplaying their hand. (laughs) They shouldn't gulp. They should sip. They should show that they're responsible with power. Right now, it looks like they're power hungry. Green says Democrats arguably won control of the legislature with the help of a massive turnout spurred on by an abortion rights ballot measure, not to mention newly independently drawn districts that ended up competitive anyway. One factor in Democrats' favor, infighting within the state Republican Party. I think the Republican Party is the best gift Democrats have. The idea that they're doing all this right now with an absolutely dysfunctional and operative broke party apparatus and probably gives them license to do what they're doing. Let's be honest, they're not afraid of Republicans. I wouldn't be. 
And there could be a long road ahead. A deadly mass shooting at Michigan State University jumped gun control bills up on the priority list. And the legislature still has all year to meet. For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson in Lansing. Later today, what's sticky and foul-smelling and about 5,000 miles wide? It's a huge blob of seaweed floating toward Florida and Mexico. Find out more this afternoon on All Things Considered. Try listening on your smart speaker if you haven't already. You can ask it to play NPR, or you can ask for your member station by name. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we learn about the country's oldest continuously operating high school marching band as it turns 150 years old today. Mostly cloudy and low 50s today, overcast and low 40s tonight. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the low 50s. Mostly sunny on Sunday, but only in the upper 30s. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The Healy administration is looking for ways to expand a wind power testing site in Charlestown. The Wind Technology Testing Center opened in 2011. It was the first place in North America that could test those giant blades of offshore wind turbines. The Baker administration wanted to expand the site so it could handle even bigger blades, but that never happened. Now Governor Healy's office says it hopes to get the $70 million project done. Boston remains in the running to become a federal biomedical and healthcare innovation center. The government agency known as ARPA-H picked the Washington, D.C. area as one of its three hubs. But the Boston Business Journal reports the agency is still considering Boston for one of the other two hubs. A landmark restaurant in Quincy has a new owner. The Clam Box on Williston Beach is now owned by Marco Fanny. The Patriot Ledger reports he owns some other restaurants on the South Shore and now controls the Clam Box. It's expected to open for the season next week. It's 844. When Bono and the Edge performed at NPR's Tiny Desk, they were joined by a high school choir. On the road. It was funny because we all knew it was an accident, but Bono was like, he likes it, so we, we just did it. How students helped shape the performance of two of music's biggest stars on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Every year in Memphis, Tennessee, a St. Patrick's Day parade brings thousands of people to what's known as the birthplace of the blues. 
But not only the blues. Another musical legacy was born on Beale Street 150 years ago today when a group of students played what would become a historic first gig. Here's Christopher Blank of WKNO. Every band kid in the world knows this sound, the rehearsal room. This one's at Christian Brothers High School in Memphis. We call it the Silver Coronet Band. Patrick Bolton runs the program. And as you can notice, their instruments are period. We have cornets. We have alto horns. The period has a specific start date, March 17th, 1873. On that day, a small group of students took their new instruments down to Beale Street and played this tune, an old Irish song called The Wearing of the Green. And maybe it bestowed a dash of Irish luck, because 150 years later, the group is still around the oldest high school band in the country. Sometimes I'm up there, I'm like, I can't believe we're doing this. This is amazing, you know? Bolton is the 10th consecutive band director across 15 decades and a Christian Brothers alum. And the legacy is extremely helpful for my job because I'm like, hey, you're, you're part of this now. That legacy happens to intersect with another groundbreaking moment in American music, the birth of the blues. In 1912, a local band leader, W.C. Handy, composed a tune based on music he heard while traveling through the Mississippi Delta. The Memphis Blues changed band music forever. Last Saturday, at Handy's Shotgun House, now a museum on Beale Street, tour guide Oscar Robinson held court in front of young musicians from Christian Brothers, all wearing their dark blue, wool, 19th century band uniforms, which are nearly identical to one a young W.C. Handy wears in a nearby photo. Anybody heard of a song called Nobody Knows the Trouble Life? You ever heard that song before? That was composed by W.C. Handy. There are more than a few blank stares in the room. Even the country's oldest high school band has a youthful memory, though the group still keeps Handy's music in the repertoire. Time out of mind. Just outside the house, past and present collide in a sonic blur. Memphis's St. Patrick's Parade, a week early, has started. Modern drum lines flow into Elvis tributes. Lots of Elvis. In the middle of all this, the Christian Brothers band members, like cornet player Justin Bowers, embrace their antique look and sound. And you know, I feel like we just add to the experience, you know? Like, it's really entertaining. You know, we just gotta add to the whole experience. Like over there, they're playing their hearts out. We got people over here singing their hearts out, and we, you know, we're just adding on to that. You know, that's how it feels. We're just contributing to a good thing going on in Memphis. And with that, they march once again into history. 150 years of high school band music is in the books. The luck of the Irish still at their backs. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Blank in Memphis. This is Morning Edition from NPR Blues. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Liederman. Sasha, it's great that you're here this week. It's been good to be here with you. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Biden administration's plan to help reconnect black communities divided by highway projects in the 1950s and 60s. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Anthony Brooks has finally dug out from the snow so he can be here to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Anthony. It's very good to see you. Hey, Rupa. Good to be here. So today we're going to be covering the state takeover of Houston's public schools, the announcement made by Republican Governor Greg Abbott's education commissioners about one of the largest school takeovers in U.S. history. The move follows years of threats. It's angered lots of Democrats who criticize the move as political. And we're going to continue to follow closely the banking story, the continued jitters around the collapse of those two regional banks and the Biden administration's efforts to ensure Americans that the fundamentals of the system uh, are solid, but Wall Street remains jittery and Mm -hmm. bank stock prices have tumbled. So this financial turbulence has yet to settle down. And finally, a fascinating talk with Madison Pauley. She's a reporter at Mother Jones who's written about a number of bills in some 31 states this year alone that target transgender youth. They would make it more difficult for trans kids to receive gender-affirming medical care. And Madison Pauley tells us that in many cases, these bills are not the result of grassroots activism, but are being pushed by a national network inspired by the religious right. Um, and, of course, we'll acknowledge March Madness and Happy St. <laughs> Patrick's Day, by the way. Happy I see you're St. not Patrick's wearing Day. green, I apologize. I forgot. <laughs> Four in the morning, too early to remember St. Patrick's Day. You're forgiven. Thanks, Anthony. Happy Friday. Same to you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmessmoney.com. And Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habibarch.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Nagin Farsad told us about a new ice cream made with actual crickets. It's the perfect dessert for the person disappointed turtle Sundays didn't have real turtle. <laughs> I'm Karen Chi, filling in for Peter Sagal. This week, we'll have more sweet and or creepy stories. Plus, our special guest, Law & Order Sam Waterston, on the news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We can put a number on the current stress on the banking system. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. We're getting a better look at just how much ready cash banks are needing to get through the present turbulence. The accounting shows banks collectively have borrowed a record amount from the Federal Reserve, $300 billion over the last week. And First Republic, the mid-sized bank most under scrutiny now after the failure a week ago of Silicon Valley Bank, just got a $30 billion lifeline, courtesy of a group of bigger banks. Marketplace's Nova Safo is following all of this. Hey, David, all of these billions of dollars we're talking about are going to ensure that these less-than-giant banks have enough cash on hand to pay out withdrawals from their customers to prevent another Silicon Valley bank or signature bank. So 11 of the giants, brought together by regulators, agreed yesterday to deposit $30 billion into First Republic because it was teetering. It's seen as having a lot of the same client base as Silicon Valley Bank and so potentially vulnerable. That seems to have done the trick, at least for now. First Republic, however, did say that it's going to suspend dividends, and it disclosed that it has, in fact, been borrowing a lot over the last week. 
to ensure it has cash to pay out withdrawals. It's borrowed through the Federal Reserve's overnight funds market, and it's borrowed $10 billion from the Federal Home Loan Bank, which is one of the lenders of last resort for private banks that need cash. And this $300 billion paid out by the Fed to many banks, where did that go? Well, according to the Federal Reserve, nearly half of that went to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Both were taken over by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now, the rest went to other banks that are short of the cash they at least project they need. The Fed didn't name those banks. And just to clarify, we're not talking about depositors' money being gone completely. The banks have the money. It's just that a lot of it is tied up, often in bonds that have lost value at the moment. And so banks run the risk of not having enough cash on hand if a lot of depositors start withdrawing funds at once. That's the vulnerability that's been exposed with Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. Nova Safo, thank you. First Republic stock closed up 10% yesterday as the private sector rescue came together. But in pre-market trading right now, that stock is back down 22% as investors digest the fact that their bank will no longer pay them cash in the form of dividends. Now here's some up-to-the-minute, right-on-the-headlines, academic research. Experts at some top universities and the National Bureau of Economic Research looked at a question many of us have been asking this week. What are the odds of more bank runs like the one that brought down Silicon Valley Bank? Marketplace's Lily Jamali has that. The study finds that Silicon Valley Bank is far from the only one whose assets are exposed to serious risk from rising interest rates, which cause bond prices to fall. Stanford professor Amit Seru and others studied 5,000 banks. He says they found a stark difference between the paper value, or so-called book value, of bank assets like bonds and what they're actually worth. If you have to sell these things today, the value in aggregate in the U.S. banking system would be $2 trillion lower than the book value standard. In other words, 9% less. If that sounds like a lot... It is a lot. It is a lot. Saru says the recent drop in asset values leaves banks and the U.S. banking system itself more exposed to bank runs by depositors whose accounts are uninsured. The vast majority of Silicon Valley banks' accounts fit that description. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance, providing direct car insurance rates side-by-side with other insurance carriers. Customers can see rates and find an option that works for their needs. Now that's Progressive. Learn more at Progressive.com. When a highway is designed to run through a city, it means moving people from homes and businesses in the path and years of dust, noise, and blight until the new highway opens for business. A highway can cut a neighborhood to bits. Often these neighborhoods have black majorities. Now the Biden administration wants to address that legacy with what's called the Reconnecting Communities Program. And there's a part of New Orleans that is still looking for healing. Here's reporter Carly Berlin. The Treme is one of the oldest black neighborhoods in the country. And for a long time, Claiborne Avenue was its Wall Street. But then, in the 1960s, the bulldozers came in. And now, there's a towering, crumbling expressway here. Amy Stelly's family bought their home back when there was no highway. She still lives there. You can hear the roar of the interstate from her front porch. It was a great, vibrant, middle-class neighborhood. The highway changed that. So Steli's nonprofit, the Claiborne Avenue Alliance Design Studio, submitted an application to the Reconnecting Communities Program, 
It asked for money for a study to reimagine Claiborne without the highway. Steli says removing it is the only way to address the harm. We're still stuck with the noise, and we're still stuck with the dirt, and we're still going to be stuck with the crime and all of the things that we've been stuck with since its inception. But Steli's group didn't end up getting the money. Instead, the U.S. Department of Transportation awarded $500,000 to a state plan to keep and upgrade the highway and possibly remove on and off ramps that slice through the neighborhood. The name of the program is Reconnecting Communities. It's not necessarily removing infrastructure from communities. The reality is that the port is dependent upon this. The healthcare system is dependent upon this. That's Sean Wilson, who until recently headed Louisiana's Transportation Department. He just announced he's running for governor. But Amy Stelly says the state's plan to improve lighting and repair the road wouldn't remedy the economic and health problems caused by the interstate itself. You can't talk about equity and leave that thing up. What the community wants most is to have an impact on the discussion, something they didn't have when the highway was built. For Marketplace, I'm Carly Berlin in New Orleans. Markets, money is flowing into bonds again with the 10-year interest rate falling to 3.47%. Dow and S&P futures are down seven-tenths of a percent each. NASDAQ futures are down by less, about three-tenths of a percent. And financial markets of all kinds could see added volatility today. It's what the Wall Street crowd calls triple witching day, where options and futures contracts expire and get renewed all at once. These happen once a quarter, so triple witching and St. Patrick's Day all in one. Do me a favor and be careful out there. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang. Our engineers are Jesson Dooler and Nick Esposito. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Happy Friday. We'll have a mostly cloudy day today in the low 50s. Thanks for joining us all this week. There's a big team behind the scenes to bring you Morning Edition. Mike Toda is our Senior Technical Director. Our producer today is Samantha Kutzia. Lainey Ruxtel is our Field Producer. And our Executive Producer is Dan Guzman. Our Managing Producer is Jeff Cohen. We all hope you have a great weekend. It's 42 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.